Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Fright Rags. Now in their 19th year, Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. October may be halfway over, but Fright Rags still has more collections coming. Stay tuned next week for more designs by Rob Zombie's Monsters coming Tuesday, October 18th, as well as Joe Bob Briggs' Halloween Hangout on Friday, October 21st. They will then close out the month with an all-new collection for Pumpkinhead on Tuesday, October 25th, and The Black Phone on Friday, October 28th. All officially licensed and available at bright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off when they use Colors of the Dark 2022 at checkout. Again, that is Colors of the Dark 2022 at checkout at fright-rags.com. The original master of horror finally brings fans into his inner thoughts and workings in the book Decades in the Making, Clive Barker's Dark Worlds. Throwing open the doors to his production sketches, paintings, photos, and manuscripts, Dark Worlds shows the earliest sketches of Pinhead from the original Hellraiser and the creative process behind Candyman to the magical world of Aberat. All of it is here alongside comments over the years from Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Quentin Tarantino, Wes Craven, and more. Go to abramsbooks.com backslash Barker, that's A-B-R-A-M-S, books.com, backslash Barker, and enter promo code CLIVE25 to receive 25% off. And welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry. And with me is Elric Kane. Fresh off a plane. How you doing? Fresh-ish off a plane. I've had like a few hours to... Oh, a couple hours. That's cool. I've been into the Pacific Northwest. I've been to the locations of that Madonna movie where she pours the hot candle wax on Willem Dafoe's wiener. Truth or dare? No, it's um, Body of... Oh, God, I was going to say... Yes, Body of Evidence. Yes body of evidence so that's where i was i was doing i don't think i've seen truth or dare since i wasn't supposed to be watching it when i was what's truth or dare i don't know that one that was like her big risque one oh the documentary yeah yeah i i that's um i've seen i've seen who's that girl um that's about the extent of my madonna viewing um yeah but that's my main project this year is to like really scout the locations for the body of you were in the pacific northwest and the big thing that you decide to to kind of name drop is the madonna as far as we can tell well i remembered it uh (laughs) as far as we could not twin peaks not gravity falls not anything else from the pacific i'm saying we are exactly the madonna movie exactly where this film takes those those are all fine but they are not this is olympia washington and the only movie that i figured out so far is body of evidence so isn't that where the beer comes from it did come from there yeah the beer i think that we, we went on a walk where they all these salmon swim upstream right outside the beer factory but it's closed did you like reach in and grab one with your mouth like a bear uh i didn't but the person i was with did uh okay i was like don't disappoint me yeah. with the bear. have you been voting in the fat bear contest already is there a competition for fattest bear have you not been a part of this? No. It's my world for one week a year. No. I've done this for three years now. Um, there's apparently this park 
Um, it's, it's one of the, the parks where they have these bears and they put them in brackets for who's gained the most weight for hibernation mm. and you get to vote and I've been voting. And there was a scandal this year where somebody stuffed through the ballot box. It was a whole thing. Um, it does sound God, like I my kind of, I'm a bear fan. I like, I mean, <laughs> I love bears. I, mean, I especially love pandas as anyone who follows me anywhere in life would ever know. I don't know if you really would know that, but you know, I, I am well aware of your panda you know, love, you know, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's anyway, about it. That's all I did. So that was it, guys. That was the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, make sure you go watch Body of Evidence before it leaves. <laughs> uh, I can't remember anything, but we did look up the trailer when I was there because we, we knew the film was shut there. And, and all you can see in the trailer is courtrooms. <laughs> so it's so anticlimactic. I was like, oh, I assumed it would be outdoors, but maybe not. Well, I wish I could say that I've been doing all things Halloween, um, but I mean, we did our normal Halloween Disney trip. Um, I am going to Monster Palooza this weekend, oh, nice. which I'm pretty excited about. I'm going on Friday, um, but we have been doing a lot of Halloween watchings around the house. Um, I've been deep in post-production, so I don't get to leave my house. I just basically live on Zoom to Toronto, um, but we have been doing like a movie a night. So I've seen Beetlejuice and Ghost. I've seen all four of the Ghostbusters um, and just really kind of going through every single gateway horror that I can think of. So yeah, it's been fun. And I'm debating if my kids are too young for poltergeist. Cause I think oh, yeah. I probably watched it when I was like Marnie's age, I think. Yeah. But it, um, it, it's, it's not a kinder horror. Like it's kinder trauma. Like it will fuck somebody up. Like that's a movie that fucked me up. That and Creepshow are the two that fucked me up more than anything else because it's actually horrifying. Like the yeah. clown's horrifying. The, uh, actually later, yeah, later in the interview that you're going to miss uh, for unexpected technical reasons, we actually <laughs> did talk about exactly how much that film fucked us up and certain, really? certain images. So you'll have to listen back. <laughs> See, I think I was probably like Marnie's age, like 10 when I watched it I was, and yeah. it did not have that effect on me. I thought it was really cool and I then proceeded to watch watch it over and over because my parents made a bootleg copy of it Dude tears his face off it just no i like his face chips off while he's eating chicken um but that for some reason it was not a big one for me and then i was like how shitty of i was even discussing this with monty via text like do i become a bad parent if i take my kids with me to see the thing at cinespot because i really wanted to go Uh and then i was like well, you know, I could warn him that it's a fake dog when they shoot the dog. And then the rest is just cool effects. Like, is there anything in there? And then I was like, I can't do it. I can't. Altergeist to me is way more disturbing than the thing, though. The thing is, I feel the same way. Yeah, the thing is, the practical effects are awesome, but it, it's like creatures and it's abstract. Poltergeist is tapping into like the things that you're actually already scared of as a little kid. And, it, and, and it's it, a kid. And it basically tells you, yeah, you're right to be scared. You are going to disappear in the static and you won't see your family again. Kind of, it's it is actually a really scary movie. You know what I have become just drastically aware of? Um, When I first got pregnant with Marnie, I immediately went into the pediatrician that we had gotten. And this is like when she was like a baby, like we had just given birth. And I was like, okay, do I need to take down every poster in my house? Like, basically, do I need to just strip the walls? Because there is horror everywhere. And the pediatrician was like, no, no, don't even sweat it. Maybe take down the sexual stuff. But whatever is on the walls, your kids are going to grow up very used to and like legit bored by. And so my kids don't even blink at like the Ms. 45 poster I have up or any of the other weird horror stuff or like there's a giant jaws behind me, but they are both scared to death of clowns. And there is not a single goddamn clown in my house. So I don't know where it came from. My advice would be similar to that, but the opposite, which would be uh, whatever's on your walls, horror or not horror, 
somebody they're going to get scared of in some capacity because like me growing up there was a picture of a woman with like a weird yeah. weird like fencing sword and i found it terrifying and i couldn't articulate why i was just saying in the image itself so i, I think it really doesn't matter they'll find something no. to be creepy. and the one picture that i did have to take down was actually painted um by a relative like a great aunt and she had painted she was actually a portrait painting she, like she has stuff hanging in the smithsonian um and we got one of her paintings uh as part of the estate and it's really cool it's beautiful like it looks like something that should be in the smithsonian um but it is just a woman standing at the end of a hallway and she's got her arms crossed around her and she doesn't really have an expression she's just kind of despondent and i remember when marnie was like five she started begging me to take it down because she said the woman had dead eyes Mm. and i was like okay fair enough i think she kind of does i could see dead eyes um and so we took it down and yeah it's but yeah, and that was the least one out of everything in my house that I would have expected her to be like, that screws me up. So yeah. That said, um, I think your Miss 45 poster should be in the Smithsonian. So Right. That's I agree badass. with that. Um, I totally agree with that. Well, so. number one, happy birthday. This is, Thank this you. is your happy birthday show. It was your birthday a few days ago, uh, which is always our way of knowing October has begun. And mm-hmm. we still have to go do our birthday celebration together. Um we're bowling right or maybe movie tell me and then one thing we did do together right before last time i saw you well we did a couple things actually but first and foremost we still smile together heck yeah so that was like a treat so we um went opening night and saw smile together and it was phenomenal we saw it in a packed audience there were gasps there were you know silence moments there was laughter i had such a blast with this movie and i am so glad um to see how it's been performing and hey we may be talking to the director in just a bit well, one of us <laughs> one of us one of us is going to have major technical problems in the future. fall off the place of the earth yeah. in about a half an hour um but for now like you yeah, know you're... he's coming on no, i'm going to be hopeful yeah no it's it, it's really fun it was one of the most fun films I've seen with you in a long time because I think mm-hmm. you were jumping more than I think I've ever seen you jump. And then I had one where I like leaped back into my seat. I a remember. Very good jump scare early. Uh, and so, you know, it was just, I, I think it's a really well crafted movie. It's there a lot was, of fun. It's, it's there was up. even a moment where I had to look away from the screen. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but while you're talking jump scares, there was a moment when we're looking down the hallway and we know something is in that dark room. I legit had to look away from the screen because it was getting so much. And I love that. That's yeah. like my favorite type. It's literally why I'm here is that feeling. Um, and so, yeah, it was a beautiful return. Yeah, but no. as Well, it's an embarrassment of riches this year. I mean, when we get to the end of the year or start, you know, when we talk about our favorite movies of the year, it's like having two studio films back to back that are both excellent and scary and fun and making a lot of money you're like man this mm-hmm. does not happen in most years and two Thai west movies and like you know the list goes on it's a pretty banner year so far um but this one i see in a kyle golner sauce bacon we'll, we'll go in depth uh, with the director parker finn later in the show but it's been number one two weeks in a row always a big deal for original horror uh i would also say i talk about it a little bit but i did just watch his short film that it was based on before we recorded this i hadn't seen it before and it is excellent really recommend it because it does something very interesting with the kind of locations. And there's a few things, a few ideas uh, that aren't in the movie in the short where you're like, oh, clearly he then made a choice to like nix certain things and follow threads of other things to develop it. And I think it's definitely worth people watching. That's called Laura Hasn't Slept Yet or Laura Hasn't, let me double check what the title was so I don't get it wrong. Laura Hasn't Slept. 
Ooh, I saw it on YouTube. Okay. It's about 11 minutes. And he talks in depth about how really the short is 100% responsible for him getting to make this movie. So it's, you know, it, it'll give filmmaker, young filmmakers hope that there are ways to do this. Um, yeah, because that is a big thing is it we have seen so much original horror coming out and that doesn't happen. That just, oh, yeah. we we have not seen this type of like original IP in a really long time. Um, so I'm excited. That's that's just awesome. And it still has some pretty cool uh, things that you'll recognize. I call it my, my, in my notes, I called it, it follows Deborah Logan on Elm Street. Uh, and so it has little elements of all of those movies, but it does it an original way. So you'll, you'll be, especially for me, where I am never going to be over the fact that I never get an It Follows uh, sequel. And I always wanted mm-hmm. a sequel. It's one of the few films where I would desperately want a sequel. Uh, so the fact that this has like elements like that, I'm totally good with. And, you know, almost added to it for me. So I uh, highly recommend seeing Smile. See if it could stay number one again. I don't know. It's kind of wild. That is awesome. It doesn't always start and- together. Yeah, we went to see the new Hellraiser as well. It was just like a great week for us seeing stuff. Yes. Uh, so again, uh, loaded uh, because we know a bunch of people involved in this one. Uh, directed by David Bruckner, our friends. And it might be named after somebody. Yes, yeah, because you are, uh, I've always called you Pinhead. So they named a character Pinhead uh, after Becca. After me, because that's my nickname. No, the uh, the lead character is named Riley McKendry, which I um, gave Ben and Luke like major hugs for afterwards. That was just honestly the sweetest thing ever. They should have called the chatterer just Elric, like shut up. Just Elric, Elric shut up. Like, you talk too much. They no longer say chatterer. It's just Elric. Yeah, uh, what? That guy won't stop podcasting. Um, anyway, this is directed by David Bruckner, his third of these like, you know, pretty intense in a row uh, grief movies really i mean like uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking um the ritual followed up by Nighthouse and this and so you know it's, it's interesting to see that chain uh luke petrowski and ben uh, collins are the writers obviously we're friends with these guys uh so we knew about this film for a long time i was very excited that somebody was getting to kind of bring it hopefully back to being i hate these words but a, like a bit of a real movie because it had been 10 10 sequels or 10 altogether yeah 10 i can't even keep track anymore are we counting pinhead in a room yeah Um, i I don't but you know it had been it had been a lot and as part of the stipulation they had to make one every couple of years to hold on to their licensing um and i've now learned it's easy to tell which films do that like if you look at a film children of the corn and you're suddenly like man they just have a new one coming out every two years and they keep getting weirder and weirder that is probably it is that they keep having to do it to up their licensure yeah um but yeah so hellraiser was under one of those stipulations and somehow they were able to get out of that um, with Weinstein's and go in this different direction. Um, And this, I will say, this has been polarizing. I've seen some very amazing reviews. I've seen some some iffy ones. But um, I have to say, for me, this was like a a return to true form, not just because the character's name for me. Um, But it was kind of, I felt the same way I felt about the original Hellraiser where I felt unsafe. It felt body driven. Um, For me, it was missing a little bit of kind of the fetishistic element of it. Like there was um, it was in there, but it was a lot subtler than I think Clive Barker probably would have intended, but that considering he seemed to heavily endorse this and they were aware of that. Even the fetishistic side of things has evolved greatly since the 1980s. Um, That fetishistic kinks now is not like 
leather dude in biker pants and things like that. Like that, even what we consider S and M has changed a bit. Yeah. Um, the, so, yeah. The main criticism seems to be that there's no internet cafe in this one. And look, only one of them was set in an internet cafe. So jets, <laughs> all right. Lance. Mine was that they didn't time travel and it didn't have Adam Scott and his little ponytail. And I, I that mean, there's like, a problem. He should have been in every single one. I just, I can't even. But no, I have seen a lot of criticisms, which is funny. I wasn't thinking this at all when I was watching it about it being sexless. Um, and, you know, I think they, it, it's my reason why I didn't have a problem with that was because I think people have always misunderstood the Hellraiser films that, or the concept of the Cenobites and stuff, which is not just one thing. They're not just there for sexual play. It could be many different urges. And I think the comics, obviously, as you've, pointed out a lot explore more of those other potentials and this is a bit more cut from that cloth maybe the comics were not sexless by any stretch but the ones that discuss sex or pushed it into a sexual manner were much different and that's where i felt this like really coming through um was this felt more like the 90s comics in that it was not just about sex it was about sensation that pleasure and pain become one and specifically it was about soul reaping that um leviathan is this guardian of hell and that all of the cenobites become his minions and it is their job to reach soul to reap souls but if they can convince humans to do the soul reaping for them with promise of you know a gift at the end of it then they've made their job easier and that was very much the focus of the comics was getting humans involved to reap souls for them Mm. and that seems to be where the start of this is yeah which is Um, fun and it's a different kind of lead character uh you know it's playing with addiction and people getting over things and letting disappointing their family and a lot of those kind of uh connections it it's a lot though like it's one of the few films this year where i need to see it one more time before mm-hmm. I could really do too much criticism because it was kind of like you're taking in a world that you've been watching for like 15 years with 10 different movies. So my brain, what I did realize is, and this is just saying that won't surprise you, but I realized because Hellraiser is in my top five horror films of all time. It's one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. But what I realized watching this was it it articulated that my interest has actually never been the Cenobites. It was always the triangle, the weird love triangle of Frank and Julia. And that my actual interest, I think, is in the weird uh you know uh the kind of kink of their dark love affair i guess and so this movie is missing any kind of love story in yeah. quote marks right and that's fine because it should be its own movie but i realized about myself that oh the cinnabites actually were never really the thing that interested me that much in the even the original i was always drawn to uh frank and julia especially julia you know a fascinating character um je- now mine was Mine was always the mythology of the box. Mm. And this really pushed that um, so much so that I was so happy that they included Leviathan because I have the Leviathan tattoo on the side of my leg, which is this very particular box formation that is barely used in the movies. Like it's barely touched on. It's a little bit of part two to say like, this is the formation of Leviathan. And they really did pull from some of the original books and mythos and how it's been kind of evolving over the years, even into the comics that the box has multiple formations and that each one has kind of something that it brings about. Um, and that every single time, you know, that it has to be solved in these stages. And so they really did play with that a lot more in this one. And it's really successful. I, really I agree. I think mm-hmm. the structure of this using the box and using it, uh, that it keeps ratcheting up and it keeps it, the yeah. puzzle side has never been more effective than this one. I thought what was interesting and this might be too heady, but I, I was noticing that the Cenobites and the box were far more 
corporeal in this versus when I think of the original, I think of this, the, the Cenobites are kind of ephemeral. They're disappearing. The box has this like golden magic thing to it. In this one, the, the box is emitting a blade that cuts you physically, which is very much about the body. And, and mm-hmm. you like the Cenobites feel a lot more like they're just there and you can, you know, knock one over or something. So it was just a different approach. Um, but I felt purposeful. Because- yeah, the criticism that I'd seen about it was that the main character, um, Riley McKendry, was unrelatable, that she was a difficult one to kind of get behind, um, not as lovable as Kirsty was. And I get that because she is a totally like a um, down on her luck drug addict who is really just kind of making very poor decisions through the entire movie. Like it's not until the final act that you see her actually kind of doing like, okay, now she seems to be doing it. But a lot of it is just endless bad decision after bad decision. Um, But that said, yeah, I still found it to be a really interesting and clever way into the Hellraiser mythos. And I hope they make another one because that's the thing that I love the most about Hellraiser is you can pick it up and you can drop it anywhere because of the nature of the the mythology. Yeah, we won't ruin this, but luckily this is now much easier to see. We start opening night in the theater, which was a cool way to see it, but obviously now it's everywhere on Hulu. But Jamie Clayton, the priest, is excellent. Uh, The person who really stood out for me was the kind of boyfriend character drew starkey in this movie he was great he was was like my favorite character like honestly had he been the protagonist i think um there may have been people who were a bit more siding with him but i found the girl to be really compelling um but yeah i think he emerged as like one of the big good actors yeah a really interesting character but the the cenobite's really cool and the play they've done on the body itself of the Cenobites is very interesting. So I won't say more. I want people to watch it, but this is one I am going to watch again and do want to talk about again, because like I said, it was the only movie I can think of this year where I, I was like, wow, it's almost too much to all take in. Cause I need, I've been thinking about these movies for so long that I want yeah. to watch it one more time on my own. So, uh, but either way, I think it's cool. Hellraiser's back and we will, yeah, hopefully by the time we're ready, I mean, you can do part five together and in space and back in time, internet cafe, I'm down. I'm going to hire Adam Scott just to get his ponytail in again. It's gonna who was the, who was the actor in the Scott Derrickson one? I can't remember. David like Boreans or what other David, guys? Yeah. Or the guy. He was yeah. like unhinged the whole time. Yeah. Or the guy um, from Nightbreed's so in one of them, right? Uh, that's the one I'm yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. of. Boone, yeah. Aaron Boone. I can't remember yeah. what his actual. He doesn't have a real name. He's just Boone. Um, Craig so Sheffer. Yeah, Craig Boone. Sheffer. That's right. Craig Sheffer. That's <laughs> it. He was the unhinged cop in one, the noir. That was the Derrickson one. Um, so yeah, I feel like we need to bring him back in there somewhere, but, but, but it is exciting space. that Prey and, and Hellraiser both on Hulu. I mean, it's pretty cool that two Hulu's up in their game. Yeah. I mean, they had fresh this year too. So they've got three. But these two are like dead. Were somewhere. felt like almost dead franchises that have both been reunited just because of, you know, I think in a lot of way, the potential that streaming allows them to maybe take a risk and be less about marketing money. So mm-hmm. very cool. Uh, that was our beyond fest night together. I saw one more at beyond fest. So I'll just throw that in here because, uh, we only we didn't get to Beyond Fest much because I had to go to um, research the uh, the body of evidence lo- shooting locations in Oregon. And I was in Brooklyn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'll be there yeah. soon. Uh, a Christmas Bloody Christmas with a new film by Joe Bigas uh, brought the roof down. Uh, that home hometown screening, man, he it was a loud one. Uh, Josh Ethier uh, produced, edited. This is exactly what you would expect when somebody when somebody says Joe Bigas made a robo santa you know basically silent night deadly night movie doesn't he star in it too uh bigas is got a very small cameo on this okay everyone we have ever met has got a cameo in this film um at some point but uh no i guess it started out 
as a uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night um, remake that he was meant to kind of work up for someone and then they didn't like it or didn't want to go that direction. So he kept going and he ends up making a $2 million, $2.5 million crazy Robo Santa movie. And you're watching it going, holy shit. He really uh, commits to that all the way. And uh, there's a couple of interests. What's cool, he's got his familiar friends in small roles, but the lead is somebody we haven't seen, Riley Dandy. She's really good. And the guy who's on the screen with her a lot is just fucking awesome. His name's Sam Delick. He's an Australian guy. Uh, my favorite stuff, I think I'm going to be in the minority here on this one because, you know, this is a movie where in the last, you know, half a robo Santa comes to life and literally kills everyone with like laser eyes, right? I am going to be in the minority where my favorite parts of this movie are actually the two lead characters hanging out in a record store or going to a bar and their dialogue. It's classic uh, kind of Bigos dialogue where, you know, the female character is basically him written to be Joe. And the way it, but when that dialogue comes through a woman, it becomes far more amusing. I don't, I find it very funny. And it becomes like a hangout movie for almost a quarter of this movie of these characters hanging out on Christmas Eve. They don't have anyone to be around and they're just, they both work at this record store. And it's just a fun vibe. Uh, what's cool and what I hate about all the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies that were shot in LA and California is there's never any fucking snow, obviously. And then, Always. And then this one. Hey, my first film. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, but yours not Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, I think if you're called Silent Night. And Deadly we didn't have 2.5, exactly. but that said, like it's it's the idea of you know if you shoot in southern california there is not yeah. gonna be any snow so he commits so that's where the money goes and uh the snow machine does not stop in this movie and it is always flurrying mm. and there's snow and it's kind of kind of wild uh uh to see that so i i could see this becoming a you know a go-to christmas gore classic it's pretty gory uh abraham ben ruby who i believe was from doogie hauser uh he plays the robo santa and uh i think people are going to get a kick out of that so this is definitely one of those movies that will uh take its place every uh yuletide i would say so look out for that i think it comes out in december okay i'm gonna take us into one that i know you watched as well um my best friend's exorcism um so yeah this one is on amazon prime they have really been pumping it there's a giant billboard of it right up my street um you know there were parts of this that i really loved and i had been a huge fan of the grady hendrix book this for me was not perfect i'll say politely um but yeah it was it was kind of a mixed bag for me but there were parts of the movie that i really liked so yeah what did you think uh, i thought it was perfect <laughs> no i i really this is one of my least favorite i had to wait because uh, for your face to change by the way are you drinking vodka out of a mason jar it looks hardcore doesn't it but that's actually pamplemousse Lacroix. You are so lame. I know. It Actually, it's not as vodka. <laughs> um, just say it's vodka. Just say it's vodka. Um, yeah, I didn't. I did not take to this at all. This is definitely uh, one of those movies where it's all about tone, right? Like I was excited to see this, yeah. even though I know it's not being made for me. It's definitely a teen kind of vibe. Um, and I hadn't read the book, and a lot of people who've read the book uh, don't necessarily think this film encapsulated the tone right either but it didn't just for me yeah, it's played it total comedy and then when it tries to go back into horror it doesn't really work and it and the people are fine in it the you know the actors are all i, I don't think it's an you know um casting problem it just i looked up the director and it's got you know he, he did you know did mostly serious bbc dramas but he did do killing eve so i was like okay no then then That's i kind of got it with killing eve i'm like that tone would have actually made sense and it just isn't quite there for me. Um, I thought the horror stuff, there's one scene where 
a, like a long uh, tapeworm type thing comes out of uh, one of the girls. And I thought that was actually pretty great. Um, but in general, I just, I just could never get into it. I kept watching it thinking it was never grounded. Like that's the thing about tone. Yeah. If you're going to do dark comedy and stuff, at some point I, I still have to feel like they're real people. And, and this never felt like it was trying to ground us in any realism at all, but. That was it for me as well is the book. It nails the tone. It feels like Heather's if one of the girls is possessed and that's what makes her a bitch. Um, And so it really is just this beautiful tone and it's got this adventures and babysitting like eighties exuberance through the whole thing of like, Mm. we're kids, but we have to solve this issue ourselves. And so it does have this, this element of it through the whole thing. So I was, I've been a huge fan of the book um, and Grady in general, but yeah, this movie for me, it was, it was mixed tonally because I felt like the first act got close to that. And then the second act gets real depressing. Like it was just a really big downer. And then the third act tried to reclaim it, but it felt like it was dropping some threads along the way. Like there were definitely some plot lines that just kept felt kind of, you know, that they were just left by the wayside. And at the same time, it was definitely gunning more for the comedy than the horror side of it, it seemed. And it almost felt um, kind of spoofy in how it was presenting the 80s, how it was presenting teen girls really did seem to be a bit of a caricature, which is weird because, I mean, the book obviously written by Grady, but it really does feel like teens. Like it really does. It's got a great vibe. The humor, it feels like Heather's, like it actually, or Mean Girls, like it's got that quality to it. Um, This did not. This felt a bit more like caricatures for me. Nothing felt real. And I think a lot of that starts with, that's why you have to be so, in my opinion, you have to be even more careful with tone when you're setting something in the 80s or early 90s, because Mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency to uh, lean into a cliche that wasn't actually how it felt when you were alive during those periods. And people, if you're going into the cliche of it, it's never going to feel as real as if you can like tap into No, no. I remember what it was like when enter Sandman first was played on a school bus and everyone was like hearing it for the first time and blowing our minds. I, 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 you have to be able to tap into how that felt, but anyway, it's a great point. I was actually having that conversation a couple days ago with one of my students because I taught a class on zoom and right behind me is my grease tube poster and one of my students was talking about how Greece is her favorite movie and she's you know just fascinated by the 1950s and immediately I was like that's not the 1950s that's the 1950s channeled through like the late 70s like if you hear that opening song that is a very 70s song the Greece is the word song um and same thing with Greece too it's kind of just channeled again through the 19 whenever that came out mm-hmm. um and so that's what this felt like it was it was the 1980s channeled through a caricature um and it it really did have like the stereotypical side of it so yeah yeah you know there were parts that i really enjoyed there were some parts that i found fun that i found captivating there were a couple of jokes that really hit for me um but by the time it got into the second act it was kind of it was it was tonally a bit off for me yeah but it's easy to see it's on amazon Uh, people make up your own mind uh i'm not gonna review this one because i i I was not a fan but i wanted to say something about it because it's it it is something that i think is actually exciting happening this weekend i finally saw terrifier which i'd never seen while i was uh, on this trip and i watched it because i had heard there was a part two out that was like two and a half hours i was like what in theaters and my brain was like and it's like doing well really yeah well. and so that's what i wanted to say like even though i watched terrifier and found it very watchable actually and and art the mm-hmm. clown i can totally i'm watching this movie going okay this isn't for me but man i totally see the appeal because it's actually gory it's very fucked up like the character isn't just 
threatening to be crazy and fucked up. It actually is pretty fucked up. And, you know, this was obviously a low budget film. So just because it wasn't for me, no big deal. But the, it did make me. And then I watched the trailer for part two and I was like, OK, it's upping all those things. So I'm kind of curious to see it. But either way, I want to say it's just awesome for original horror that that is out there. It's past like the million dollar mark in theaters. Uh, this is a, a part two of a film that probably a lot of people hadn't even seen or heard of uh in that in that you know outside of horror uh and now probably people are going in blind with not even knowing there's a part one and just watching this crazy movie which is pretty awesome and so i definitely wanted to at least say hey thumbs up to original horror out there and and we know a lot of people i guess uh, you know they're from dread to uh just there's just a lot of people involved uh, now bloody disgusting you know have kind of put the second one out so it's cool to see that happen Yeah, it is. And I mean, even just, I remember, gosh, it was probably one of the Texas Frightmares where I remember seeing that on a shirt and I was aware of the movie, but I remember thinking, wow, that indie movie was popular enough to have like Fright Rag shirts for it or these major shirts for it. Um, And now seeing it years later kind of blow up. And like my students are excited about Terrifier. Like they have seen it. So it's just the growth of an indie film. Yeah. And it's, and we don't have like, I know it's, I knew clowns and stuff, just I knew it wouldn't be for me. But on the same token, it's like cool. I have a couple original horror characters from Pearl to Art the Clown to like, these are, these are things we haven't got, you know, many recent icons. So it's kind of cool that some of them are starting to, to grow anyway. So that's a a quick little uh, plug for that. That's still in theaters. I'm going to do my quick little plug because it's not horror, but let me just say trick or treat Scooby-Doo, the brand new Mm -hmm. one. I watched it with my kids the day that it came out. This one made news because it finally has gay Velma. Mm. Like they don't hide any punches now. She's just straight up Mm -hmm. like lesbian in it. And, um, and they bring it to the attention of the audience too. And it's, fantastic like i love it so much this was such a fun movie the characters were fun um at the end velma gets so flirty with somebody that her glasses melt off her face (laughs) like it's just absolute trip um and still has matthew lillard playing shaggy as he should be doing until the the end of time i feel like matthew lillard just needs to be preserved as shaggy forever yeah yeah, um so yeah if you're looking for something fun to watch with your kids this season I am a connoisseur of Scooby-Doo movies. They literally have dozens of these and I have seen every single one. Loch Ness, he's going to go to, you know, Mexico in this one. Okay, no, this one, they're in the swamps. This one has Santa. A lot of good mummy ones. Every single one of those Scooby-Doo movies. I've even seen, they've got like a digital one. There's one with puppets. I have seen every single one of these because of my kids. And um, yeah, this one is by far one of the best ones I've seen. Yeah, no, I, I have to check that out because I always do love those every year. Um, another, or just a quickie, I've got one more movie and then one quick plug because I haven't seen it all yet, but I did start last night when I first got home. I started the first episode of Flanagan's new uh, Christopher Pike adaptation, The Midnight Club. Uh, oh my God, I love Christopher Pike. Yeah, see, I, I missed all that. I don't know why. I was too busy reading Dean Koontz or something. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, I miss Christopher, but like I remember the covers, but that's about it. Uh, and- Christopher Pike was sleazy. That okay. was the fun thing. Like there was, it was this beautiful time of the late 1980s, early 90s, where there were all of these horror books coming out geared towards kids. And so like R.L. Stein had Fear Street. There was a bunch of them. Um, Shirley, um, Oh, gosh, I can't remember her name. The woman who did uh, Down a Dark Hallway and oh, gosh, her name. And I love her and she's escaping me, but she was definitely having a resurgence around the time period as well with her horror stories. Christopher Pike was where you went for sleazy ones like his stuff was always like 
way more kind of lifetimey. Um, and my favorite one of his, like he did Chain Letter. There was oh, one, Chain Letter, um, I definitely knew. Yeah, there was one that was like about a theater company that I absolutely loved that I always thought was really cool. There was just some really cool stuff in these Christopher Pike books that was way more sleazy than you would ever find in R.L. Stein. Well, yeah, it's too early to tell, but I actually I enjoyed the first one. It is. Uh, a group of terminally ill uh, kids, you know, teenagers are all end up at this um, house. It, uh, what's what's the word called? Um, Convalescent? No, it, it's the the house where, well, it's as bleak. It's basically the last place you go uh, where, where there are no other options for someone. So it's basically, I can't remember the name. There's a, uh, there's a good, there's a name for it. But anyway, so they're all, they all have different, um, you know, some people, have, somebody has leukemia, somebody has uh, thyroid cancer of some kind. They all, so it's, it was kind of a bleak setup where I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this right now. Uh, but as you go, it's about, they kind of meet in the basement of this and this building, this old house has a history and there might've been a cult there at some point. It's intimated. It also has Heather Langenkamp as the main doctor. And so already I've heard she's amazing. Yeah. So that was cool. I mean, she's only kind of in, in a couple seconds of the first one, but, um, but they basically get together at midnight in this, in this kind of basement and tell each other scary stories. And that's, that's all it's really touched on so far. So I have no clue. And clearly the, the main girl is starting to see, visions or ghosts you know around the place as well so i'm sure it's going to have a lot more uh to reveal itself but uh, you know after the first episode i was like okay cool it's not like midnight mass where you're like wow this is like the writing is just off the wall shakespeare kind of this is obviously a different thing but i'm, I'm very curious so i will keep up with that one well, I have um, two more things to, to talk about. Um, so I watched while you were watching that. I was also on Netflix watching Mr. Harrigan's phone. Oh, yeah. um, I liked this way more than I thought I oh, would, cool. to be honest. Like it's a Stephen King story. I knew that it tended to be more YA. And I was already seeing reviews that though, when you Google it, it immediately pops up as a horror film. I'd already been seeing stuff on Twitter that was like, this is so not a horror film, but I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to watch it. It does definitely push more YA, I will yeah. say, because your protagonist is like 13, 15 for most of the movie. Um, it follows the life of this kid who um, is hired by this very wealthy old man in his tiny, tiny little um north uh east hometown it's maine mm. um and he is hired by this very wealthy man who is played by um oh gosh why did i not write his name down donald donald sutherland mm. um and donald sutherland is great in this and he is the reason he hires him he hires him when he's probably in like eighth grade um because his eyes are going and he misses reading and he wants this kid to come over twice a week and read to him and he will pay him for it and so this kid starts coming over twice a week and reading to Donald Sutherland. And it follows him all the way through middle school, all the way into high school until um, he's at his senior year. And then Donald Sutherland passes away. And right before he passes away, this kid gives him a phone. And it's like his big thing because in it, Donald Sutherland's character, Mr. Harrigan, is obsessed with stock markets and finances. They really play him as like a Scrooge mm. where um, and this kid's able to like find the heart of gold within him. Um, very great story there. But yeah, the the exploration is very very much like Mr. Harrigan is um, just this ruthless businessman who has amassed these fortunes. He's obsessed with stocks. And so shortly before he goes, the kid gives him a phone so he can watch the stocks update to the minute. And he becomes obsessed with it. And then a couple months later, he dies. And the story develops. That all happens in like the first 20 minutes. 
the story develops when the kid is he's spent years reading to this old man that six years now they have a lot of longevity together. He genuinely enjoyed his company. Um, he starts texting the guy's phone and leaving voicemails for him just as like a way of grieving of like calling him up and saying like, I miss you. I'm sorry. I really miss reading to you. And the phone starts responding hmm. back and that, and he was buried with the phone. And so that's kind of where the horror starts coming out is it then evolves over the next couple of years of him occasionally getting texts from Mr. Harrigan in responses to things that are happening in his life. Hmm. And um, so you it, it has this supernatural quality. Um, this one felt really cool for me, like where it goes, where it evolved. I had a lot of fun with this. It did not feel like it had an ending for me at the mm. end of it. I was really like kind of that's that's it. That's it. We're just gonna we're just gonna do that now. Okay. Um, that was a hell of like a two-hour setup just to be like, that's it, we're done. Um, but that said, I enjoyed it up to that. This has been a very mixed review film, and I get that because it is um tonally a mixed bag, and it's definitely I would struggle to call this horror. Because it is like the supernatural side of the phones are so secondary to the relationship between it's very much like, um, oh, gosh, finding Forrester. Um, And then there's also like this weird, like supernatural cell phone component. But otherwise, it's very much like young teen boy is going over to this older man's house um, and slowly to, to learn from him and slowly, you know, their relationship evolves and it becomes bigger. And it's all about books and celebrating literature. And what are you learning from the characters? And then, oh, yeah, this supernatural cell phone. So I get the negative reviews, but I was I was in up till the end. Okay, yeah. No, I didn't know Donald Sutherland was in it. Um, he's really good in it too. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I was like, "Holy shit, he's good!" Um, I saw, so yeah, I have one more thing. Go I ahead. I got two more. Yeah, oh, I forgot I had overlooked one, but one I wanted to recommend you because I think you'll like this one a lot, and it's really fun. It's called Significant Other, and it just hit Paramount Plus a couple days ago. I saw this pop up. I've got it on my watch. Yeah, list. it's by the uh, co-directors who made a little film that I watched with a friend of ours, Monty about a year ago called villains that was actually really had some cool twists and just was a surprising little uh kind of home invasion film but this one is micah monroe queen of horror currently uh she is backpacking with her boyfriend played by jake lacy and they are in the pacific northwest in the middle of nowhere it's kind of a two-person movie for the most part and they are uh hiking in the woods and in the opening shot of the movie so it's not a spoiler you see something like a comet coming down so instantly your brain is like oh there must be some sort of alien life force or something out there. And the, it's really about she's somebody who suffers from like panic attacks and has uh, certain issues in the film. And the boyfriend's trying to get her over it. And he is taking her into the middle of nowhere uh, with the hope of proposing to her, thinking that's going to be the greatest thing ever. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about the story. They go in there. Something happens. She sees she sees something in a cave and the whole story and the whole type of movie you're watching completely shifts. 180 and it's really fun like it has such a fun twist t vibe it would pair really well with honeymoon um in terms of like the kind of horror but not not the tone the tone is actually almost becomes funny even though you wouldn't think that from the first 20 minutes there's humor to how dark it goes so it's somewhere between sci-fi and horror i think this is actually a really fun kind of light it's like i wouldn't say it's like at the ending it's you know it's it kind of i don't know if it can um handle all the big sci-fi kind of 
ideas on the at the beginning and end of the film but the actual couple stuff is really cool and the performances of both of them are really great because they get to have some fun in there uh but i think you would enjoy this film uh i, I recommended it to our friend dick the other day and he loved it so i do think some, it's certain people i think will take to this one more than others excellent yeah i just saw this pop up a couple days ago so it is on my watch list. yeah i hadn't heard of it but then i just saw anything mike and monroe is and usually i'll be like oh i'd watch that and then um she was yeah it was really good um what's your last one and i have one more go ahead because my last one's a graphic novel okay real quick uh yeah i wanted to give a nice big big old plug to a horror film festival that i've never been able to make it to because i'm always in new york about a week after it ends and that's the brooklyn horror film festival um but i'm gonna be there next week for one day of it so i'm very excited next wednesday if you're at the brooklyn horror film festival i will be there all day i'm seeing three movies um but i was able to see one of the movies i was going to be missing um i was able to get a screener so to make one that i was very curious about that i heard good things about called husera or husera i'm not sure how exactly it's spelled um directed by michelle garza curvera from peru and mexico i think the film is said in both and this is like a really interesting very realistic postpartum depression horror film with a lot i think it won tribeca i won a bunch of things at tribeca earlier in the year and it's got a lot i would say the allegories and the themes it completely nails mm-hmm. some of the horror maybe less so because it's what in the end because it's spending more time in the themes but in the middle it's definitely a full-on horror film um yeah it was really interesting it's grounded it's a, it's a young uh a woman who really wants to have a child and it's and she struggles and she goes and you know worships at a you know this giant kind of temple at some point uh that brings people luck and when she returns you know she she's her and her partner they're pregnant and what what you start to learn is that even though she thinks this is what she wants she starts to realize there was a life she uh, life and loves she had prior to this relationship that maybe because society was less accepting, she turned away from in her family and, and has these regrets. And that kind of leads to uh, almost, almost like giving a, a demon, if it's a, if it's a demon, a gap to enter her life in in the mm-hmm. form of maybe the postpartum depression. And it's about a person has to maybe reclaim who they actually were not who they think they should be and so the themes i think and the allegories are very strong that's why i think this one is more of a crossover to probably also non-horror fans would watch this and be like oh this is a really interesting movie um but but i also think it's going to do well i think this one premieres on friday when this episode is on so if you're hearing this in the morning you might still be able to get tickets um but i'm excited because i was born in brooklyn and i never have gone to a horror film festival in brooklyn so hopefully next time i see you i'll be able to tell you how it was yeah, I've had films play the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival before, and I've never been able to go. I, I've always been so bummed to miss it. I think I've had two short films play it now, um, and both times I couldn't go. I think one was COVID, and it was online. I remember that. We were online, but which was still fun. I did do their online festival. A shout out to um, Matt Barone, who was the, one of the main programmers there at yeah. the Fest, yeah. Um, So the last thing I'll talk about tonight, I actually read um, a couple of books while I was on the plane to and from Brooklyn. I was there for the AMC Summit last week. And um, so I, I, that is my perk of being on planes is it is the one time I'm like, I got six hours, no kids yelling at me. I don't have to talk to anybody. I'm putting in headphones. I usually don't even play music. I just put them in to block out the noise. 
And then I just read the whole time. And so um, on the way there, I binged a bunch of graphic novels that I had sitting on my shelf for a long time. And the one that I definitely want to talk to people were actually, it was recommended by a lot of our listeners. And this one, it kept getting recommended to me over and over. And this is The Silver Coins. It's an image um, graphic novel. So it's, it's gone on for a while now, but I had bought the, the volume one that I think it's like issues one through five in it. The way that Silver Coin is set up is it is very much an anthology. It's got multiple writers and each one tells the story of this mysterious silver coin that whoever finds it will immediately be given fortune, but the fortune will come with a curse. Hmm. So the story opens in the 1970s with this kind of down on his luck guitarist. They're trying to be kind of a, a major rock band, think like Deep Purple. Um, and he can't figure out, you know, why they aren't getting popular. And suddenly he finds this coin and all of a sudden their band explodes. Like everything that he, the owner of the coin, touches explodes but then it comes at a horrible cost and so and that continues and like one of the stories is set in like the year like 2050 something like way in the future and they're scrap metal people after the fall of society um and so it really does get transported all over the place but the coin is always the linking thing and you don't they don't say you know they're judas's coins that's just what i kind of inferred is like it was it was you know that kind of classic story of the pieces of silver um but that said yeah it's it's not there is no religious connotation it's just these coins exist if you find them you get good luck and then horrible stuff happens this was really cool i really enjoyed some of the stories how these put together i really enjoyed the art and the characters in this so i just ordered the second volume yesterday and i'm excited to keep going with this but um silver coins if you have not checked it out this was a really tight one from image i also read um i will mention hold on where is my notes on that I don't even know. Um, I read, uh, oh gosh, House Across the Lake by Riley Sager, um, which was actually recommended to me by Mark Ward, had recommended it to me back in the summer and had been sitting on my shelf for a long time as well. This one I thought was an absolute blast. This was a quick read. It wasn't one that you need to think a lot about. It was kind of the perfect plain read because I finished the entire book like I read it six hours on the way there. And then I did like another three on the way back and I finished the whole thing. Um, so it was just an absolute treat. You think it's a woman in a window story. Very much like I talked about earlier um, this year when the woman in the window came out on Netflix. That there's this mad grouping of thriller novels where it's always about the housewife across the way or the woman by herself who lives by herself and see, she sees what she thinks is a murder and then no one believes her because she drinks too much wine or, you know, she wasn't wearing her glasses or whatever. It starts out like that, where it is a woman by herself on a lake house and you find out that she's going through detox, that she has an alcohol problem and she's been sent there by her family to try to get a grip on it. And across the way, she becomes convinced that she sees this couple across the way. She sees the husband murder the wife. And what makes this fun is it keeps twisting on itself and it eventually goes in a completely different direction that I was not expecting. And it pushes super far away from the woman in the window. Um, but House Across the Lake, this was a really fun um, twist on kind of the woman in the window. And it was just a fun, quick read. Had some cool moments in it. All right, cool. 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think that gets us up to date on everything. I will say we heard quite a bit of feedback from people. It seems like people enjoyed our 90s uh, Oscar horrors. So uh, expect another decade at some point soon as we'll ev- eventually get to that those insane 80s. Um, but I'm glad people like that because that was actually quite fun to do. Uh, yeah, that was. But unfortunately, yes, unfortunately, this will uh, be the end of uh, Becca for. Uh, yeah, I feel like hard. my computer is about to have some major technical issues where it keeps <laughs> shutting down on Zencaster and then logging me in and out continuously oh, well. during the next hour. We'll see how that plays out. Um, but, I'm just, but, I'm just going to get a tea and sit back. Yeah, just enjoy this. But you, the listener <laughs> uh, will, will be thrilled to know. Yes, we have the director of smile Parker Finn and a really fun combo about the making of that film and uh, his kind of horror influences and all that good stuff. So uh, come back for us. Parker Finn. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello, I'm Suze Romero, and I'm the president and founder of the George A. Romero Foundation. It's spooky season, and we're also doing our annual campaign drive. We're looking to raise $20,000 this year. We need your help. We want to provide the support to filmmakers in the horror space with scholarships, mentorships, fellowships, all the ships. So please visit georgearomerofoundation.org and donate today. Take good care. Stay scared.
All right, we are very excited to be joined this week by somebody who has the number one movie in America, I think twice, or I don't know if it's two consecutive weeks or if there's a break in there, we'll find out. Uh, Welcome to the show, Parker Finn, director of Smile. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Is this consecutive weeks uh, number one or was it like number one and then something else happened and then it took over? It's, yeah, two consecutive weeks, which is uh, just sort of beyond surreal to me yeah well when it's and when it's an original harm i think some people like i was saying to you before we started that because i didn't really pay attention to the campaign it just initially looked to me like a glossy new teen teens are gonna die from some app kind of movie (laughs) and i didn't pay attention and then uh, me and becca went and uh i've seen about eight years of movies with becca and she jumped more than she's ever jumped in any other movie Uh, (laughs) i jumped there's a certain part with a sound bar where I lunged backwards into my seat and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm hardened, uh, but not in this one. Um, so, I mean, I think it was such a nice surprise to go in. I don't want to say with a low bar, it's not as simple as that. Just kind of, you know, being like, okay, whatever, let's see what the new, new thing is. Um, and especially after maybe thinking hard, Oh, it's peaked with barbarian. We're not going to get another great movie and really being blown away by this. Also the craft uh, being blown away by the directing craft in this film, there's just little things like um, I think it's early on in the film where you're looking aerial, kind of an aerial shot looking down at someone going into the hospital and then you keep track very Hitchcockian, you know, uh, design. So anyway, congrats for bringing her back again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll take it. Appreciate it. Now were you, I don't know. I mean, we'd, I, I was, I watched your short right before this and I was like, oh, I wonder if you're Australian. Cause there's a couple of Australians uh, in your film. So I wasn't sure what, what is the origin of the short film first for you? Like, was this part of the feature from an early uh, point? Like, did you have a feature script or was the short its own thing? Um, so the short started as its own thing. I had spent, um, you know, years in Los Angeles uh, writing scripts and, you know, directing some short films when I could, when I could scrape together some resources to do it. And most of them had been, um, you know, very, very uh, inexpensive short films that like my myself and my friends could go out on a, on a weekend and figure out how to scrap together. Um, but then I had been wanting to take a a bigger swing on a, uh, on a short film. And I'd been kind of like writing stacks of these, trying to find the right one to do with. Cause when you're going to, you know, um, when you're going to take a swing, you know, it's gotta be the right one. And, um, this idea for what eventually became this short called Laura hasn't slept you know, came around and, uh, it was an opportunity to sort of just, you know, put a lot of different elements of craft into about 10 minutes. Um, and also it was, uh, something that I could, you know, anchor with a central performance, which, you know, I, I watched so many short horror films and I felt like that was something that you didn't see very often. Usually tended, they tended to be so technical in their approach and sort of, um, you know, maybe sometimes would leave performance on the floor. Um, whereas I wanted to make that like a central component to it. And so, um, you know, I, I like called every favor that I had banked, uh, managed to like beg, borrow and steal a bunch of stuff. You know, a lot of things, um, you know, came, came together for that. And I, you know, I sort of internally raised, you know, um, about half of, of what was still a very modest budget, um, you know, from like friends and family and, and, uh, and collaborators and then opened like a couple of new credit cards with no, uh, no interest for 18 months. and just sort of like, you know, covered my eyes as I, as I was 
you know, loading them up with the rest of the expenses. You're taking your swing um, though. That's the thing. You, Cause you know, you can, this is the one to swing on. Yeah, exactly. And I had done several that, you know, we, we spent nothing pretty much yeah. on, you know, other than, than food and, and, you know, the thing, the absolute necessities. Um, and so we, you know, we, uh, we talked our way into a soundstage and, you know, we, we basically had, you know, five days to, to build that set and, um, and, you know, two days to shoot and then one day to, to strike it out and, and wrap out of there completely, which was just, you know, a total, total whirlwind. But um, when I was, you know, it, it was always designed to be self-contained. I think the best short films feel like they should exist for their own right. I think when something feels like a commercial for something bigger, it doesn't always pass the sniff test. It's kind of like, well, why am I watching this in the first place? Um, I wanted it to be something that, that, you know, any casual viewer would, would get a kick out of. Um, and single scene seems to be like single location scenes tend to, you can go deeper, right? Like it, I, I feel yeah. the same with indie, like very low budget indie features. If you have too many locations, you're, you're probably straining yourself to get, you know, what you need. Yeah. And, and that was part of the fun of it too, was like, can I do something that starts with two people in a room um, and very small and intimate and then make it feel like an event while it's happening. Right. Um, yeah. Cause you have a major like, shift. I don't want to yeah. give it away. Cause it's actually, I, I do recommend people check it out cause it's different enough from smile to be its own thing, but it reminds me a little bit of the nightmare and smile. One of the nightmare scenes in smile, but the shift, yeah. the, the way the location alters like a dream sequence is, you know, makes it feel pretty big. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, we worked we worked very hard, and you know that <laughs> that short film was put together with you know scotch tape. Yeah. So like, it's, you but know, it doesn't I'm, show. I'm, That's the thing. It's I, I was always struck by Lawrence of Arabia. I remember seeing a photo of the whole crew hanging out and drinking tea, and just it, it did my head in because every frame, <laughs> what they put in the frame, does not look. You don't believe humans constructed that movie. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, no, totally, and. Um, you know, when, when we were in post on that short, which again, I mean, there was no, no money for post or anything like that. So it's just me and some like very close, you know, collaborators and friends, uh, working in like evenings and stuff like that to, to finish it. Um, you know, we, we, this, something about the idea, even though it started as a self-contained things, like it just kept gnawing at me and, and it, this sort of feeling about like a larger story started emerging from it. Um, but, you know, we, I was so focused on the short and, and we managed to um, get it into South by Southwest. And uh, it was it was meant to premiere at the 2020 South by Southwest, which was R. March 2020. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that that uh, I think I've said this a few times now, but like, you know, I think the 2020 South by Southwest and the NBA were like the two big first dominoes to fall to COVID in the United States. And then like hearing that, like you know, Tom Hanks had, yeah. I felt like, I remember, yeah. like, Oh wow, this yeah. is real. And we found out, you know, that it was like the week of that they finally pulled the trigger and, and, and canceled it. Um, but because it was so close to the festival happening, um, and everything was lined up, they went ahead and did the judging anyways. Oh. And, uh, and we were so lucky to have won the, uh, the, you know, special jury recognition. Um, and so that got announced on, you know, on deadline and all the trades. Um, and we had this this link, uh, this Vimeo link for the short film that had gotten like slipped out, and um, you know it was under a password. And I remember like I was it was a few it was like a few days into like that you know the early days of the pandemic, and suddenly I like looked at the Vimeo 
page and like it had jumped like hundreds of views and I was like whoa like what is happening and um you know so I took I I, I went in and edited the page and like put my email on that page and then like I woke up the next morning and like my inbox had absolutely exploded uh, which was really really yeah. just a wild way to, to to start you know the pandemic um, and suddenly I, I, you know, I had never been on zoom before that. And suddenly I was on like 10 zooms a day with different people around town. It, it was incredible to see, you know, it felt like all of Hollywood was watching that short film. Yeah. It's what it's, it kind of bothers me sometimes. I, I hear a lot of, I teach film to student, you know, to, uh, at college and it bothers me when I hear people say, yeah, shorts don't matter anymore. Everyone should make that indie feature. And it's like, well, you know, you got to make things in alignment with what you have. And I think with a short, the, the idea of a short as a calling card, it's still, it's bonkers what can happen. I, one of the craziest stories doing this show was when I met Fetty Alvarez and he talked about uploading yeah. it at night, going to sleep, coming to Hollywood two weeks later and having like a two picture deal. You're like, shit happens if, if the person making the work is doing it for the right you know reasons, like, you know, infusing it with that passion. Um, well, let's oh, actually, though, I was going to ask you about one influence. When I was watching the short, the film that came to mind wasn't the whole film, but it was the um, the part in the diner in Mulholland Drive where the guy tells him about the dream. <laughs> and the way you have the dream equality to the delivery in your film, too, I was like, oh, there's a little bit of that, you know, Lynchian, you know, quality, maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely spent my time um, worshiping at the altar of David Lynch. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I find that. I mean, Mall and Drive in general plays out like such a just surreal, awful dream yeah. in the best way, and um, and that sequence in, partic- in particular definitely had a, had has you know imprinted upon my brain. Um, I, I I love that you made that connection. You know, I think that um, like consciously or not, I'm sure that sort of seeped into to what I was trying to do with Laura Hasn't Slept. And I think one of the reasons why people always are trying to emulate Lynch and the reason why that's it, it's he doesn't see a difference, I think, between dream life and waking life. Whereas in most Hollywood movies, it's like, I'm, I'm asleep and here's a dream and now I'm awake, right? Yours is definitely blurring yeah. in the feature too, which is, I think, how you have to do it or how somebody, if they ever do Nightmare on Elm Street again, it's, it, it's what you have to remember where... We're made up of both, I guess, right? Yeah, consciously. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about how I'm always fascinated by, especially now that I know it's not you didn't have the feature and this was like a short to shop a feature. So what were the cha- challenges and when did it become clear what threads to follow for the feature length version? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like I said, I had been I there was something about you know, the, the concepts I had explored in the short that just kept sort of, um, like gnawing at my brain while I was working on it in post. Um, and when it became clear that, that there was, you know, an opportunity to, to pitch something, um, you know, I, I had, I had already been sort of obsessively thinking about this idea. So, you know, I, I, I went away for a couple of weeks and I, and I, you know, put my, fingers to the keyboard and I, I just sort of followed that thread um, that, that, you know, was something that was already sort of like burning inside. And for me, I mean, the, the, what really, uh, you know, what I had, I had grabbed onto was the, the character story that eventually became um, Dr. Rose Cotter played by Sosie Bacon in Smile. Um, I was just so fascinated by this idea of taking something that, that felt so like, you know, deeply psychological and, and internal that was informed by, you know, by 
the character's history and her, her trauma and her guilt and all of these things that she had been walking around with and then bringing in this extremely bombastic external element, you know, that is, you know, potentially supernatural and, and extraordinary and seeing if I could like put those two things on a collision course and start sort of braiding them together over the course of the story until they become indistinguishable from one another. Mm. Um, I thought there was something really, really fascinating about that. How, how, you know, you're being pursued by this unknowable external thing and yet it's completely informed by your own internal stuff. And, um, and I just, you know, I want, I wanted to take a lot of the DNA that existed in the short and sort of thread that into it. But I, I didn't want it to just be like a retread of the short. You know, I, I, I look at them more as kind of like, I guess some people have called it like a, it's almost a sequel to the short. Um, I like to kind of think of them as like, you know, spiritual siblings in a way where they, they share a lot of, of the same, uh, the same genes, but they, they, um, they're kind of operating in different ways it gives some other insights to, yeah, I, well caitlin you're casting with caitlin stacy from the lead in the short and she's really good and you know oh, yeah. great in the short and then in the feature she you know she's you have to believe that character when you're talking about performance earlier it's like especially a movie where you're constantly having to evaluate if this is a reliable narrator character because so much of this movie is about that and yeah. other guys so you need uh, and then with saucy i was i'd actually for some reason i'd seen her in other movies totally didn't rem- put it together so it felt like watching a first performance and that was a great feeling i wasn't sitting there thinking about her dad or something you know it, and she's and it's really alive so I, I think having somebody who is a reliable narrator it's it's proven from the start of the movie this is somebody who's respected somebody trained somebody who actually works in the uh, that f- psychiatric field, and now we can't, we don't know what what to believe. You know, it's it's a pretty great tightrope um, between the two. But I thought the short had some insights, like um, you know, in the short, the, they talk a little bit about in her dream, the man just wants to show his face and, and keeps wearing these other faces, and it's like you never come out and say that in the feature, but when you hear it from the short, it starts to infuse what that the big bad is, and it's kind of that's kind of exciting actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, it's, it's fun. Cause it felt like, you know, in the short, you have such a small time frame to, to get, you know, sort of what you're trying to do across. And then you, you get into the feature and you're like, you know, like, can I dole things out in a way that I think like the audience will, will pick up on whether it's subconsciously or consciously or, you know, um, can I, can I elicit the, the feeling out of them that, that I'm, that I'm chasing. And, um, yeah, that was that was that was a fun one. Uh, in terms of the casting, besides now, how did Saucy? We actually both Beck and I know Kyle because he used to live out near us, and we met him a bunch of times. Awesome, awesome dude. Always, always yeah. happy to see him thrive. And this year, he's killing it. Um, oh, yeah. He's having a great year. But like, how were were these all people you'd seen in other stuff, or was it just any tricks to the casting? This one, this one. Yeah, I mean, well, I knew from the beginning that. Um, you know, well, well, I mean, just to just to touch again on on Caitlin, um, you know, Caitlin, when when as soon as I started, you know, uh, developing and conceiving of Smile as a feature, um, I knew I was going to have this like role, uh, at, you know, in the first act that was going to be this like sort of parallel to the character from the short, and it was going to be this you know big bombastic bravura scene. Um, that, that has this massive, massive ripple effect on the whole film. And, I, and, 
you know, I wrote it with Caitlin in mind, you know, there was nobody else I thought of for that role. Um, I knew what she could do, what, what she could bring to it. We'd had this really great experience working together previously. Um, and, you know, I was, I was so excited at the opportunity to, to get to work with her again and somebody that I already knew that I could, I could trust with the material who was going to really elevate it in, in such a great way. Um, so it was fantastic to get to bring her back. Um, and then sort of beyond that, you know, I, it was so clear to me that, um, you know, Rose is in almost every scene of the film and that the film was truly going to hinge on that performance because, you know, it is this sort of like, you know, really just kind of out there, you know, supernatural, big thrill ride, but it is, it is so specifically a character journey um, that, that we needed to get that right. And I had been meeting with different actors for, for the role and, um, you know, there, there was, I met with Sosie. I had just watched um, Mayor of Easttown, uh, oh, yeah. which I loved, which is a, a great, great show that people should should go watch if they haven't seen it. Um, Craig Sobel. And, yeah, great work by Sobel. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Brad Inglesby, who, who created it, is a fantastic writer. Um, but, you know, Sosie's character in that show was, like, not an easy character. You know, she's a, a you know, ex-drug addict who's got a lot of baggage a lot of history that needs to basically just be on her face and in her countenance and the way that she's carrying herself um you, you needed to be able to understand that character who was very complicated in a moment and and the character's introduced sort of as you know as like a heel to kate winslet's character in the show and like the first time you meet her you meet her you're like oh i don't like her i want her to to go away. She's going to mess things up for, for Kate Winslet. Um, but then, you know, you, you get more scenes with her and, and the, the like depth of humanity that she brought that character and the way that you empathize with this person who's, who is, you know, dealing with such difficult circumstances and, and, um, in such a human way, I thought was amazing. And I, I think that she's only in like, I don't know, nine or 10 scenes throughout the entire series, but she has such an impact on the show that I was really blown away. And so when that idea came up, um, you know, I was really excited to, 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 to have the meeting with Sosie. And then we started talking about the script and she, she, it was very clear the way that, you know, she thinks about story and the way that she comes at character is, is really smart and thoughtful and she's thinking about um story in a way that is just really sophisticated and she was telling me how she had been really looking for something that was going to be a challenge that you know would honestly was scared her as as a performer um something to take on and um you know i left that meeting and i and i called the studio and i was like we found rose like right away and and in my opinion i mean what what she brings to it is is this you know, with Rose, like where she starts, Sosie's got this ability to draw an audience in and really, really ground a character in believable reality. You know, she brings such an honest performance and you, you, you really empathize and care with her, uh, care about her as, as a character so that when she has to go to these really extraordinary, like unbelievable places, you're along for the ride, you know, she, she, she captures you at the beginning and then you're willing to go anywhere that the character goes. And, um, you know, and then the other side of that is she has this like really uncanny ability to, to go to these extremely heightened 
uh, places of anxiety and, and stress and fear um, with, you know, it's this huge performance that's got so much nuance inside of it. And like, you know, that is a magic trick for, for an actor to pull off. And I'm, I'm just like so, so excited that, that we, we work together on this. Movie. Yeah. That's, that's so my barometer too. Like if somebody can do real and grounded, great. That's the fundamentals of screen acting. But if they can also do possession, a Johnny, if you can go, if you can dial it to 24 suddenly, yeah. but make it still believable and care. And, and that's the, that I, I always get just enveloped in those performances. And I think some people sometimes are critical, but they're the performances that 30 years later, we still talk about Shelley Duvall in the shining because it's on a hypnotic level at a certain point, you know? Yeah, Which is and I love I love big performances. I always have. I've always been drawn to them in in films, and like you know, I love nuance and subtlety as well. But um, you know, the stuff that sticks with me is always these these big performances that you know where it feels like there's no no way to go too big, and yet it never it never goes over the top. Yeah. You know, that's that's always really fascinating to me. There's a moment at the start that uh, you know I always think, what is your in for a character? When do you get on board? And for me there was a, a nice, I mean, mostly a screenwriting move, but it, it's when she gets the phone call and she's meant to leave the office and she, she does leave the office and you hold for a beat and she returns the call. And it kind of tells you, it gives you the end that, that this person's going to go all the way, that they are all in, that they don't want to be home, <laughs> that they don't want to be alone with themselves, you know? <laughs> and, and, yeah, and it's okay. great when you can get that across. And, and that might be a skill and a feature that kind of comes from the, the need in short films to be so, concise you know or something like that which i thought was really cool um i wanted to ask you and uh, about crafting crafting the horror side of it and, and crafting some of the scares and like set pieces if there's things you you look at when you're you know when you're writing the film in terms of from other films are there how do you go about like is it i mean obviously intuition is a big part of these things but but also sometimes there are movies that you go to and go okay look at how they actually uh you know for me the ones that still scare me even though i don't like found footage films but they're the only ones that can usually make me jump so i go to them and go why is that oh it's the restricted point of view right you're trying to come up with what you can take or rosemary's baby the way you're 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 stuck with the camera or something like that um are there things like that for you with the film yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, the scares were, were you know, they were all born out of the script. Um, I mean, you know, and they're, they're there on, on the page. Um, you know, I think for me, like, I love a good jump scare. You know, like if, if, if somebody can get me, you know, my hat goes off to them. I, I love it. I think they're, they're really fun when they're earned and when they're, um, you know, creative in their, their setup and, and payoff. And especially, you know, if they are leaning into what the story is doing. And that was really important to me was the, the way, you know, the, the film works without like, you know, going overboard in any sort of spoilers. Um, you know, this it's number one in the world because everyone has seen it now. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, this, this, you know, this evil that comes into Rose's life, um, it is systematically picking her life apart. It is, it is, its whole design is to traumatize you and break you into submission. Right. And so it felt like there was an opportunity to use, you know, these, these scares, uh, as, as, you know, part of the storytelling as, you know, we're, we're progressing through the story. They are doing to the audience what, 
you know, the movie is doing to the audience what the the uh, you know the the story is doing to Rose, yeah. and and so I felt like they they would they could work organically in that way. Um, and then as far as you know, crafting them for me, um, I always try to. I mean, I always start by looking inward at like what would creep me out, what would scare me, but the the you know, I think that horror audiences now, audiences in general, but especially horror audiences have gotten so savvy. Um, and they're very hard to, to get them to, to jump, um, or to, you know, genuinely get a fright out of them. So I try to like put myself in their shoes and think about, okay, like what's a, what's, what's a path that could go down. And then like, you know, what would I maybe be anticipating as an audience member in this moment? And then I'll try to like, you know, I'll, I'll zag when the audience thinks I'm going to zig, hopefully, and, and, and try to pull the rug out from underneath them and, and scare them in a way that they were not anticipating. Or, or if I can, like, build that into the pacing of it or into um, sort of, you know, like how the release works or the lack of release. You know, mm -hmm. I think, like, those are really interesting ways to, to play with the form. And, um, you know, I feel like, you know, you can't litigate people's tastes. You know, some people just will never like a jump scare ever. And, and that's fine. And that's totally cool. Um, I do feel like, you know, uh, there's been this like weird avoidance of good jump scares uh, in the past few years of, of, of horror filmmaking. And I feel like, you know, there's always room for, for, for good ones. And I, I hope the ones in smile work. on. Them. Damn. You're calling out eight twenty four. I heard that. I, I love I, it. I know, but it, but it, it's true. I think sometimes there is an aversion, but if it keeps propelling things, it's because because like we they always say, horror and comedy are so similar structurally, and it's not like you just yeah. avoid a cheap joke. You need the cheap joke sometimes to set up. You know, the, I think if it's a cat scare, it's different. If the cat jumps out, you know, totally, totally. And and here's the thing is that like I also knew like when I again you know I'm always you know I wrote and directed Smile, and and when I'm doing those two things, I'm always trying to make the two forms sort of like work together and, and meet in the middle and, and, and see, you know, um, what I can do with them. And, and, you know, there was this idea that I had early on with how I wanted this movie to feel. And I wanted it to feel like, um, we don't get any breaks mm -hmm. from like what is happening to Rose, because I think the character doesn't get any breaks. Right. So, so, you know, as her life is spiraling out of control and spinning out and just, you know, that, that anxiety and that dread that I was hoping to introduce from the very opening, you know, I want it to just like, just keep rationing tighter and tighter and tighter. And it sort of like, hopefully reaches into your chest, grabs you by the spine and drags you forward unwillingly. This feeling that there's no break from that, you know, I think a, a lot of horror films, like there'll be a jump scare and then there'll be a big release and you reset and you feel, you know, you get however many minutes of just feeling like, all right, we're safe now. That's over. You know, we can, we can move on. Let's do this joke. Let's do whatever. Um, I wanted it to feel like, Oh my God, none of this is safe. I can't ever relax. Like I can't unclench. Um, you know, that was my goal with how I wanted to use jump scares. And, 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 you know, I hope, I hope that that comes across. In the yeah. Well, we were there's a sequence I won't spoil, but it, it's, it's, it just keeps ratcheting up a form of madness and the scares and and after it was over me and Becca looked at it and we we're both like uh, this reminded of us, us of Event Horizon which is a movie we both think is pretty badass so you're in good company uh, because it's just kind of shocking and strange and that you know sometimes I, I think madness and escalation have to go hand in hand this idea that 
you don't peak too soon with the jump scares. They they keep surprising, and you it's not just going bigger; it's going different. If, I think by without spoiling the last act of the film, there are so many moments where what you're watching even visually changes. So you're not just bound by the rules you set up at the start. And I've had arguments with people about movies. Like I, I remember when I saw it follows, I was firmly on the campus. I don't need to know all the rules exactly. I don't care. And they're like, but that one guy told them the rules. I'm like, that was a 17 year old blonde kid who yeah. thinks he knows the rules of the, I, it, that doesn't matter to me as long as what you're giving me feels grounded. And you know, like you're trying to create yeah. a real world. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I mean, here's the thing, like, I, you know, I, I'm a horror fan. I, I love horror movies. And I love when the, the, the way the movie scares you continues to sort of like change and escalate and, and keeps things fresh. You know, that was really important that this was not a movie that was going to do the same thing to scare you over and over again. Um, but that was going to constantly be sort of uh, surprising you with, with the approaches it was going to take this thing that like, as soon as you think you have your fingers wrapped around it, it, it like wriggles through again and, and surprises you. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's, it was very funny because, you know, it's <laughs> one thing that I keep hearing from so many people that, that see the movie is they're like, oh, like, like the, the, the smiles are actually like kind of a small part of like what is scary mm-hmm. in the yeah. movie. Uh, it's all of these other things that are not in the marketing that I think. Because um, oh, you know, that's the mask. The smiles, the mask. Yeah. The smile shouldn't be the scariest part. It's what's. You should be worried about what's under that, which I, I think is effective. Yeah. When you're talking about the unrelenting um, approach, which because I think that might be what why I got so into it, because it is rare to see something that keeps going. The last thing I can think of where the first half is like that, maybe not the second half, is the um, the entity with Barbara Hershey in, from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Because And what, what I think there's some similarity just character-wise was um, if she told me her story or Saucy's character you know, even open-minded people like us who maybe have seen a lot of horror, we would not believe them. We would think they have yeah. lost their mind. And that's that's really upsetting when you're watching a movie where somebody is actually in control. They are a reliable narrator, but no one believes them. You realize in real life that unfortunately... I don't. I don't know what you could, what evidence anyone in, could produce in real life for somebody to actually take them at face value, and yeah. it's a really slippery slope. I, I agree, and like you know, it's important to me that like as we're watching the film, that you know, the, the movie places you with Rose so strongly that you know she's in almost every single scene, and like everything is either it's either like on her or or involves her perspective, and you know, so we we get to like experience everything she's experiencing. So we know where she's coming from, where she's coming from. But like when you, when she's having these conversations with the people around her, we also understand why she is sort of very, both like frustrating and frightening to them uh, in, in, in what she's talking about and how she's pre- presenting, you know, it's very much designed to, to be to work that way, you know, which I think is sort of related to the, the, the themes and motifs of the film, you know, while hopefully still placing us in the empathy of, uh, of Rose's character. Yeah. She's in a, she's in a toxic relationship with somebody that she doesn't want to be at her. It's controlling and undoing her life and undoing her support system, but it's not, you know, it's not a willing relation. No, I mean, it's, it's super interesting. And I think to maintain that for the whole film is, is pretty fascinating. Um, One of the cool things I think about the film and I really, I think this and Barbarian both have that potential, I think, in years to come is, you know, once this hits home video, there's going to be a bunch of like 
10 year olds and they're going to accidentally watch this and it's going to fuck their shit up so hard that their entire <laughs> life will course of they would have been uh, probably you know famous psychologists now they're going to be horror film directors uh, <laughs> which is the way it happened to probably all of us uh, for me it was creep show at five it wasn't meant to I don't know what they were thinking but it totally gave me nightmares for like a decade but I'm um, so I'm curious for you what was something like what were the those early movies that maybe maybe disturbed scared because a lot of people we talk to tend to kind of end up being scaredy cats when they're little and then they started watching horror and somehow at some point they started being a little more in control but i'm i'm curious what your relationship to that was yeah i mean that's funny that you say that because i feel like that was exactly me you know i as a kid i really liked horror films but i always found myself to be like especially affected by them Mm. um you know like being at like being over at like a friend's house, you know, and watching, you know, I mean, like, I remember the first time we watched the nightmare on Elm street and like, you know, we all loved it. And like everybody else for the rest of the night was like, all right, what else are we doing? Like, are we playing video games? And I was just sitting there like, yeah, but guys, what about that movie? That was so scary to me. You know, I felt like I, I, I couldn't even get past it. And I don't think I slept for like a couple of weeks after that. I was, was so terrible. Like, I mean, nightmare on Elm street is you know, it's a perfect idea yeah. for a movie. It's so, so, so smart and scary. Because uh, it comes also comes from saying real, like in yeah, his case, there's like, a new story, but then there's a real experience from his, you know, like his childhood. And when you morph those things and then you build it organically. Yeah. Well, just things that, you know, I am so terrified by, by things that have like an inescapable, inevitable sense to mm-hmm. them, I think are just deeply deeply frightening um and you know that that like you can't not sleep i mean it's the same reason why invasion of the body snatchers scared me so badly the first time i saw it you know it's like i mean literally the same thing like what are you gonna do oh the the 70s one the donald sutherland yeah which in my opinion like when i when i refer to that i mean i know i've seen them all um they all have merits but i mean yeah that one's that one's the the best for sure yeah well the ending of that is about as scary as things get just it just the person you want to believe in you want it, but there's a little bit of smile in that i can see that actually a little bit of the yeah. you know seeing somebody you could you think you could trust and there they are uh yeah. i did watch the ferrer one again recently and it has one scene in it that is up there with the like it's just one it's such the mom transforming it is mm-hmm. fucking scary just the way it, yeah for sure you know that's the that was the most recent one that i saw for the first time and um i was like I was shocked at how like effective yeah. uh, some of the moments in it were. I mean, I shouldn't have been shocked, but well, know, I think it's it's, he like, ups the sexuality, I guess, of it, you know, and that makes it yeah, quite disturbing the way he puts it. Puts it. Yeah. But yeah, what were some of the others that maybe put you all, that you started building around? Yeah. I, well, so like, you know, like as a kid, I mean, my dad was a cinephile. He introduced me to my, you know, and my mom had been a school teacher. So she got me reading very, very young. Hmm. And my dad was, you know, very into movies and um, he let me kind of, like watch all kinds of rated R shit that I was way too young to be watching. But, um, you know, I have a lot of, of distinct memories of of movies, you know, that, that, I mean, I mean, the first time I saw Poltergeist, it screwed me up big time. That movie is, is deeply frightening. Which part? Uh, Cause I, 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 I'm the same way. It was one of my earliest traumas. I'm just curious. I think everyone has a different sequence that fucked them up if they want to start young. Yeah. You know, the tree really fucked me up. Mm. I thought that tree was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. Um, I thought the little clown on his chair was absolutely yeah. terrifying. They should burn the movie. Uh, they should just burn the whole yeah, film. The, the face <laughs> peeling in the mirror, all yeah, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, the, the Shining is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, it's something that I revisit constantly. I mean, Kubrick is my favorite filmmaker. Um, 
But, you know, I think uh, I saw The Shining the first time as as a kid, too young to see it. And, you know, when, God, when when Jack goes into that bathroom yeah. and hugs that woman, it's just like that reveal, like, is so, so, so deeply frightening. Uh, at least it was to me oh, as yeah. a kid. But it, it wasn't just that. It's the, it's the, there's something about the atmosphere, I think of all Kubrick films, but especially The Shining that like my young brain was not prepared for and the performances. And um, I mean, that thing just, you know, it, it like, it like psychically imprinted on me in a, in a way that, that nothing else ever had. And, um, and, you know, I just, I was terrified of it for a few years after I saw it as a kid and then, you know, rewatched it in, in high school and then got obsessed with it. And it's like, you know, I love all of Kubrick's films, but that one for me is, is, you know, it's such a, such a strong movie. Yeah. I think I had the same experience. I think I started at eight and it became like a favorite movie. And I think there's a couple of things. I think it's usually, I don't even like kids in horror films. Um, I think it partly is because we are seeing it at the same age. We're really the same age as a protagonist and it's about a family yeah. unit being the horror, you know, that the horror is coming from inside the family unit after all. Uh, and I think, yeah. and I, the other thing is it's like, um, you know, Kubrick, like more than once, he had to invent a piece of technology, you know, more or less in, in this case, using the, the use of the Steadicam and Barry Lyndon, the use of lenses. You're just like, this is, it's so mesmerizing that movie. If it comes on TV, yeah. I will just keep watching it because I'm being pulled down a hallway, you know? He's incredible too. And, and it's, it's a movie that you can like, I mean, first of all, I, I love building sets. Those are some of my favorite sets of all time. You know, I think that they're just, they're so fascinating and there's something to like pick up. So there's always something new to pick yeah. up on in that movie, which is such an incredible feat for something that's as old as it is. You know, I mean, there was like, I can't tell you how many times I watched that film and, and it, you know, where, okay. So, so Kubrick goes to the length at the beginning of the movie to have a, a by the way, no drones back then. So helicopter shot of, of, you know, this, this establishing big wide shot outside of the overlook hotel. Right. And he's doing it on purpose. And there is no fucking hedge maze, hedge maze there at all. <laughs> yeah, right. right? But your brain doesn't think about, it doesn't consciously think about that. So that when they end up in the, in the hedge maze later, you're like, Oh yeah, of course there's a hedge maze there. Even though he showed you that there isn't, you know, yeah. I probably saw that movie 10 times before yeah. I picked up on that. Like that's such like an amazing feat of, of movie magic, and and it's those little things that he is doing, and the you know obviously I mean the the architecture of the hotel has been talked about to death at this point. I'm not going to add anything to, new to that, but like, you know, just the little things he did to put you in this off kilter sort of like liminal strange space. Uh, it's you know it's brilliant. It's why Kubrick was Kubrick. Yeah, you know? no, it, it, it's when that that's why. I, even though I made the joke about A twenty four, the difference. I, everyone hates the term elevated horror, but what it really was, and I think why I was being misinterpreted during that this A twenty four kind of renaissance is that it's um, directors who wouldn't normally just be making only horror films because when we saw people like Polanski and Kubrick and Freak, and these are people who are making all sorts of different movies at a very high level. So when they did make a horror film it it just had a different weight to it because of the techniques that they were bringing to it. And I think we see that a little bit in that model with A24. You study, I think sometimes they're giving money and freedom to people to make what they want in that way. And, yeah. and I think we're, we're lucky for it in that way. Uh, totally, totally uh, so The Shining, I totally agree. Now, what about, were, were they always like uh, big classics or were you somebody who like, uh, you know, some people love, love the crazy B movies or what was your vibe growing up? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I loved, um, 
it was, it was, I guess it was, you know, I, I became a video store kid once I had a little more agency in my life and, and would spend a lot of time at the video store sort of, you know, uh, like just walking the aisles for hours, picking up, you know, VHS boxes and looking at the box art and reading the back. And like, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of like inventing what these movies were in my head before I actually had the chance to see them. So I, you know, I was scaring myself with films before I had even seen them, but you I know, it might I, be the I biggest like lost to culture. Like, like when I talk to young people, I'm like, you are not getting the same experience oh, where our brains would go as we're looking at the box art, wondering yeah. if we'd ever see that still in the actual movie. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the sort of the, the, you know, it would just like get my, my, my creative juices going as, as a kid, you know, just like imagine all this stuff. Um, you know, and I loved, loved practical effects as a kid. I was so fascinated by them and all, all of the sort of masters that were doing that. I mean, man, the first time I saw the thing, yeah, the, the thing scared me so bad as a kid. And it was just like, it was the, 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 you know, the, those practical effects are so yeah, I mean, everybody's so spoiled now, right? Everybody's seen everything. You can get on the internet. You can look at anything you want. You can find it, you know. But like as a kid, when I saw that, you know, that the impossible was happening in front of me. And, you know, you get used to seeing like, okay, like, uh, listen, I love Spielberg. And like, you know, the movie magic he created was was incredible. And I, I actually do blame him for, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the – the, um, the Last Crusade, you know, when when the bad guy chooses the wrong cup and turns old very fast. I mean, that's not a horror movie, but that moment in that film fucked me up really badly as a kid. Uh, scared the absolute shit out of me. All three but, of those movies have amazing horror scenes, right? Like, oh, yeah. All three of them are sure. films, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, it was the first time that I saw some something, you know, with, when it came to the thing where, like, the special effects on display were so horrifying you know, that like they just ex- exploded my brain. I mean, what Robotine had, had done, um, I at that point had never seen before. And, and I mean, they still hold up to this day. And, and I, I deeply, deeply love, you know, practical effects. I, I felt, I also, I remember the first time I saw, um, you know, the, the remake of The Blob. Um, some of those effects oh, yeah. like really, really bothered me. Um, and, then, you know, just trying to like, Get as like you know. I got early issues of Fangoria when I when I could get my hands on them, which was not that easy back in the day. Where was that? Where were you uh, growing up? I was growing up in uh, northeastern Ohio, okay. so like kind of in between Akron and Cleveland, right outside of Akron. Yeah, and um, you know, I and and I mean anything I I could find. I remember there was a you know uh, watching like the the tales from the dark side and like just like anything that had these like really cool like practical special effects i was just instantly in love with um and uh i mean even you know like uh, you know cameron with with uh you know the terminator films or like i mean god i mean i, I alien like i mean yeah. both alien and aliens but ridley scott's alien i had i was so obsessed with i was obsessed with like just the, the xenomorph i'd never seen anything like that i it was i thought it was the coolest scariest thing i'd ever seen um you know, that first time I saw that movie. But even if you didn't have that creature, it would still be a scary movie. Like totally. the scenes of, of people course, alone. It's, yeah. it, again, it's a craft movie where. Well, it's a masterclass. Well, that's, a, that's what's amazing about some of these, you know, like the shining or alien and stuff. You know, my, I, I was like a, a little boy when I saw them the first time and they, they just blew me away as like the most casual possible, you know, film goer 
I, I could be. And then you like, you grow up with them and you like really start looking at the craft and the, the performances and the writing, all this incredibly smart stuff. And like you peel back all the layers of why it works as well as it does. Um, and there's just so much more like buried beneath the surface of, of those films. And that's what makes them, you know, all time classics. Yeah. And great themes throughout, right? Like each of, each of those movies, like, especially when we look at alien and shining, it's like how many dissertations could be written on these films, right? They, they have layers. Yeah. Um, I, I think Saucy's character has that, like the layers, like the onion, you don't know who she is when you first meet her and you keep getting more and more. And by the, even the last scene, you're getting new information about a character, yeah. which is, Gosh, I think yeah. that's the, you know, it's the hard part. So rewatchability. Uh, now, obviously the movie's, gonna do gangbusters it's doing great which is you know both probably a surprise and also totally joyous to you right um and and this isn't a uh industry question so much because the industry always wants to make sequels but for you personally when you when you see that story is there more room for you when you think about the world of that story that you would be interested like personally interested not talking sequelized money or any of that stuff purely world Um, you know like, like, you know, I, when I wrote Smile, I wrote it to exist for its own sake. You know, this was not like an idea to be like, and we're going to like set up 10 more of these. That was not, um, you know, again, it was really, I was, the thing that drew me to it was that was the character story in a big way. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into smile just because there wasn't enough room to do all of these things I wanted to do with it. And there was definitely some fun things that like, you know, uh, you know, we never even shot. I mean, they got cut out of the script long, you know, just because of, of, you know, page count and budget and all that kind of stuff. Um, or just things that just like, were not the right narrative path to go down with it. You know, even though there was something very fun there with the concept. So, you know, I'll, I'll never say never, but for me personally, as like a filmmaker, I never just want to like retread or, or redo the exact same thing I just did. Um, so it's just like not interesting for me as a filmmaker. I don't think it's that interesting for audiences. Um, so, you know, I'd want to make sure that if there was more smile to be had, that it's, um, you know, it's doing coming at it in an unexpected fresh way and that that there's you know some some new tricks up its sleeves and, and new surprises for the audience that they might not be expecting yeah or get it no it feels that and it feels that way in the film too i mean then the reason i even ask in this case and things like there are a few other films that i personally would want to see the world again house of the devil was one it follows starry eyes where i it's like or the descent where your brain starts to dream of the sequels because the world wasn't finished and and there's a lot to be said about never doing those because then the movie obviously like i always say to people what if nightmare on elm street had just been that movie (laughs) how scary is freddy krueger today if there had never been a sequel but um so i can see both sides to it but i did i did feel like when this ended that there's still a part of me that's like oh i'm very curious where the potential of the seed goes not just uh as a studio cash in of course you know that that they have different motivations of course um one of those that you mentioned does have a sequel. I know the descent does, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I needed that, <laughs> that sequel. I don't know if I needed it either, yeah. but I, as soon as I saw it existed, I watched. it. Oh yeah, I no. I I, yeah. I I actually met Neil once, and I thought I thought I'm, I'm not a big origin story guy, but I thought that particular story I would have loved to have seen the original cave people who went in to, uh, who ended up being stuck there and became. like that's where i'm kind of curious how it could go down but yeah no but i mean sequels you know sequels in the 80s 
were a huge part of what we were just when we were talking about video store culture. That's what we grew up on: good, bad, ugly, wild. They they some they often had pretty amazing stuff. I, I still think Hellraiser Two is a pretty brilliant movie. It opens expands totally. the world, and um, so this is just my way of saying: if you do, I'll be there. So that's all you do, <laughs> but do it organically. And uh, but thanks for coming in, and I really mean it. We we really we we don't do as many guests as we used to do uh, on the show. It's often us just talking about horror. But when when we see a film that bowls us over, where it's always exciting to try to you know find out and uh, who made it and and why. So congrats, man. Oh, wow. Gosh, thank you very much. I mean, this was amazing to come on here and, and get a chance to, to talk. And I apologize, uh, Becca's connection for people listening, wonder where she disappeared. She was kind of our own jump scare because throughout the interview, her video would pop up. We wouldn't hear her and we'd see her face and then she would disappear again. <laughs> like, yeah. I, need, I needed a little <laughs> every time she yeah. came up. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, I hope it can stay number one for one more week. That would be incredible for her. Uh, let's hope nothing good comes out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, and thank you very much. Have an awesome Halloween, and thanks for uh, making the year a little scarier. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, you have an awesome Halloween, too. Cheers. Well, that was fun. I wish I'd been a part of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I hope mean, it was fun. I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's just I'm going to have to buy it. I'm going to have to buy a new computer. This is pissing me off. But anyways, thus I digress. Thank you guys so much for listening tonight. Hope you are enjoying your Octobers and watching plenty of good horror. Please check out our Patreon um, show Deep Cuts, as well as some of the other cool perks that we do over at Patreon, like our cheat sheets, where we pass out lists full of movie titles and stuff like that twice a month. Um, otherwise, yeah. Yeah, that's that's about it for the night. So, Elric, what are you watching tonight? Uh, tonight, I oh, I, I will give a last plug. I will be on the Toby Hooper uh, screen drafts coming up. I don't know whenever they put it up, but we're recording it tomorrow. And I've been I've filled in almost all. I only had a couple I hadn't seen. There weren't ones that would make the list, um, but I'll talk about them on deep cuts. Uh, but I am going to rewatch. I think I'm going to rewatch Life Force one more time. But I don't. You know, I, I know Life Force well, but I think I'll watch one more to close out my nice. night. Well, I will also say that I was on screen drafts last week doing horror comedies. And oh my, it gets live. Like apparently our show um, was the most number of vetoes ever used in a screen drafts episode. Oh boy. Um, because it was just us arguing or not arguing. We we kind of set ground rules of what a horror comedy was at the beginning. Um, but for every rule, there's five films that break it that might qualify. Um, so do you guys think Scream is a horror comedy? Let's see. Tune into screen drafts and, and and join my pain and my headache as we deep, deep dive into horror comedy. They really should be different categories. Hours. Comedy horrors versus and horror comedies. They are and that was like a big thing, like Ghostbusters. Is Ghostbuster comedy. a comedy, comedy horror, horror? Comedy horror. So I said that it was a comedy because when I saw it at Cinespa a couple of weeks ago, Jason Reitman introed it and he said that it was that though it included these horror elements, that it was a comedy. Um well, I I think and one way to tell us look at the start if you look at yeah. the start of a movie and it's all funny and jokes and then eventually horror comes into it it's a comedy horror it's like well by that logic ghostbusters doesn't apply because it opens with the library scene which is fucking terrifying but then it's also funny straight i mean okay you're you're right i guess yeah that's <laughs> that's true that did terrify me in the theaters when i was a kid i like jumped yeah. out of my skin um but yeah no there that, that is a that is a very debatable topic so yeah, no, it was it got it got real. Okay. So please tune in. All right. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. We will be back in two weeks with something really fun for the holiday. And in the meantime, hope you're watching lots of horror. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 